Hello, good evening and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, we hear from one of the authorities on sea shanties and the disruption to world shipping caused by the blocking of the Suez Canal. Over the last few months, we've had a huge reaction to the couple of items we did on sea shanties. And that was after the worldwide explosion in interest in those songs caused by TikTok. Now for tonight, I spoke to one of the world's leading authorities on sea shanties. His name is Tom Lewis. Tom now lives in Ireland on a boat on the Shannon Waterway. I spoke to him by Zoom earlier. That in itself was a bit of a comedy of errors between the two of us, but we got there in the end. Tom has had a really interesting life. He told me first where sea shanties came from. Sea shanties, as we have come to know them, actually started at the era of the end of Napoleon. Uh, and shortly after uh, Napoleon was defeated, there was a grand conference in Paris to rid the seas of pirates and leftover privateers from the wars, etc., which then caused it that caused interoceanic commerce to burgeon and the ship owners started downsizing the crews so there was still the same amount of work to do because the technology hadn't evolved so the sailors started to sing songs to coordinate their own muscular efforts and they employed a shanty man who would lead the work and the singing with his voice and they would uh, and they they would heave and haul or whatever they needed to do in unison and maximize their muscular effort and that's what shanties were for you made a career out of singing these give us one of them uh, here here you go there's uh, i'm a flying fish sailor just home from hong kong way hey blow the man down buy me a drink and i'll sing you a song Give me some time to blow the man down. So the shanty man would be singing whilst the crew were resting. I'm a deep water sailor who'll do you no wrong. And then the crew would pull twice. Way, hey, blow the man down. And then they'd take a rest. And, uh, and they would carry on like that. Now, if, it, if they were tramping around the capstan, they'd use a different cadence, which is really marching. The capstan being how they hold up the anchor. Well, not they didn't just use it for holding up the anchor. They would use it also for um, for moving the ship along. Um, some if they were in a dock and they needed, if they were in a, a harbour and they needed to get to a dock to get out, they would. But they couldn't use the sails. They would send send a rope down down the jetty somewhere and get it get it around a bollard and then crank on the capstan, march around the capstan, and pull the ship. They were a different type of song. How did they go? Well, well, they would, they would be singing something. Now we are ready to head for the horn. Way, hey, wrong, go. Our boots and our clothes, they are all in the pawn to me. Rollicking randy dandy oh, Heave a polo, heave away. Way, hey, roll on bow, the anchor's on board and the cable's all stored to me, rollicking randy dandy-o. And the, the sh- a good shanty man 
would know his trade and know what the job was and what was happening and how long it was likely to last because the shantyman didn't give the orders, the captain or the first or second mate would give the orders and they would be looking up the mast to where the main yard was, was being hauled up or looking over the side, seeing where the, where the ship was relevant to the anchor. And then they would call a, call a halt to proceedings um, by, you know, up behind or well enough or high enough. And, uh, but the, by which time the shantyman would be sort of singing his, his final chorus if he was any good at it. Did these songs have themes? Did they sing about the same thing all the time? Hard liquor, uh, cold liquor and hot women, name mostly, yeah. <laughs> they sang about things that they missed. So, so, that, so they missed their families and they would, they would sing about, they would sing about the, their families or their girlfriends or the girls they were going to. Uh, and and they, would, they would sing about, you know, the... the Whiskey, Johnny. The captain's got whiskey, but we've got none. Whiskey for me, Johnny. Oh, and they they would sing. They they also got an opportunity to vent their frustration in the songs. There were no, there were no shanties allowed in military navies because the sailors, if they were singing, might put in stuff that was tantamount to mutiny. In, in the merchant marine, uh, where there was still a lot of discipline, the sailors would, uh, would, would complain about the food or the captain or, or whatever, and they put in, and that was allowed. That was sort of fair usage. Uh, so there, the, and there was, there was just a lot, of, a lot of social detail was going on in shanties, and it was great. How have they survived down through two and three centuries? They survived really because some of these were written down in books and in the, at the end of the 19th century. Because by the end of the 19th century, when powered ships were coming into use, the shanties started to, uh, started to disappear. But there were still, even at that time, and right up until, uh, until the end of the 1930s, there were big four-masted barks which were slow but efficient and they were cheap to operate they, they called them wind jammers and if you had to take copper ore in one way uh, around cape horn and then you'd fill up your your ship with guano and then they would br- bring back guano so that so the big the big four-masted square riggers barks and full rig ships would be the last repository of the sea shanties. And luckily enough, there was at that time a young man on board these ships, a man called Stan Hugill. And after the Second World War, he, he was employed on those ships as a shanty man. And after the Second World War, he became bosun of the Outward Bound School in Aberdovey. And there, they heard him singing these songs to the young men that he was teaching small boat handling to. And he, he, they'd, they'd hear him exhorting these, these young men to greater efforts with his voice. And they said, "What? wait a minute, those are shanties. You know these things? And he said, yeah, of course I do. And they said, well, you ought to write them all down. His name was Stan Hugill, and he wrote 
the very first compendium of shanties, which actually explained what they were for and had the musical notation in them. And that book became Shanties from the Seven Seas. And for people who sing, sing sea shanties, that's the Bible. You sing sea shanties for a living, but you also write them. But you have a history in the Royal Navy. Tell me about that. Well, I joined the Royal Navy in the spring of 1959. That's, uh, that's 61 years ago. And uh, no, 62 years ago now. Yeah. And um, but uh, sea shanties were not part of the repertoire that I was taught when I joined. I, I joined as an artificer apprentice and an artificer just means a tradesman. When, when they shipped me off up to Scotland, I started going to a folk music club in Dunfermline in Scotland. And it was a hotbed, I have to say, of Scottish nationalism and, and hardline socialism, which actually got me a security dossier before I was 21. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I was hearing folk songs there and occasionally somebody would throw in a sea shanty. I just, I just fell in love with, with folk music generally and sea shanties in particular. You spent several years serving in submarines. What's it like to live and work in a submarine? Uh, well, that was, I have to say, I enjoyed it immensely. It was, it was crowded. It was cramped. It was smelly because I was only ever on diesel submarines. You got to know everybody intimately. You got to live an intimate life with these people. You had to get on with them. You couldn't take your troubles out on deck. You, you were a couple of hundred feet under the surface of the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific at sometimes. And there was, the discipline was amazing because it was all, all depended on self-discipline. There was very little spit, spit and polish. They didn't care how long your hair was. They didn't care if your trousers were pressed. What they needed was, were you doing your job? And was everything in your part of ship working? If it was, if that was happening, then fine. G just get on with the rest. That was the early 60s at the height of the Cold War. It certainly was. Um, I spent uh, my, my submarine. Um, the, the beauty of diesel submarines is they can be totally and absolutely silent because they're diesel electric. So you can switch everything off and just float there. And you can be a listening platform. And mostly that's what we were. We would go off for three, four, five, six, seven weeks at a time up to the Iceland Faroes Gap or the, or the, uh, or the, or the Iceland Greenland Gap where Russian submarines would be transiting to come out into the Atlantic and we would be hanging there quietly listening for them. And then every 12 hours, we'd go up and make a radio report, run, run the engines, even though we were 60 feet under the surface, because you had a, a snorkeling system, which we had pinched off the Germans at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the, recent, uh, the, the recent problems with our German cousins. And, uh, and, then, and then we'd come back. But uh, we, were, we were away, and my wife didn't get to hear anything from me for weeks on end. You're now living in Ireland on a boat. 
I am, I am, and loving every minute of it. I'm entitled to be here because I was born in Belfast, you see, so I, so I really am Irish. But um, the boat is in a beautiful little marina just, uh, just off the confluence of the River Shannon and the Boyle River up in a place called Knock Vicar. And uh, we're at Tara Marina. It's absolutely beautiful. We're quite remote, but we... But we get to uh, we get to do everything that anybody can do uh, during COVID-stricken times. And I tell you, if you've got to social distance, a boat is the perfect place to do it. You're also at the moment giving sea shanty concerts by Zoom. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I was uh, I was the guest artist at a Scottish folk club uh, about two weeks ago, and uh, that was my very first foray into actually performing on Zoom. And then on Saturday night, I did a two-hour workshop, which was called an evening or afternoon, depending where you are on the planet, with Tom Lewis, the evolution of the sea shanty. And I, I had to start off with just explaining, as I've been doing to you, what shanties were, how they came to be, how they were used, and then take them through to where we are now, because, of course, Part of the reason we're doing this is the, the wonderful uh, Wellerman TikTok thing that went on with our, with our Scottish friend, and good luck to him, more power to his elbow and his voice. Suddenly, a lot of people have become aware of this thing called sea shanties, even though they're not really familiar with what on earth they are. So I'm, a, I'm now proselytizing as a, as, as a sea shanty ambassador. Okay, so g- give us another one, another song. I'll give I'll give you one of mine, which uh, which I found from uh, from actually uh, from Ulysses. Um, but I was I was I was reading up about the voyages of Ulysses, and at one point, um, Ulysses uh, or Homer uh, has has Ulysses wanting to leave dry wanting to leave a light sea and move to dry land and the advice homer has for him is to take a nautical implement something like an anchor or an oar well an anchor is fairly heavy and carry it inland until he gets to a community that don't recognize that implement at which point homer says he'll be far enough away from the sea never to hear the sirens calling him back to the sea so so i've got a song for that called Marching Inland. Lord Nelson knew the perfect way to kill your mal de mer. And if you pay attention, his secret I will share. To any seasick sailor, he'd give this advice for free. If you're feeling seasick, sit underneath a tree. I'm marching inland from the shore. Over me shoulder, I'm carrying an oar. When someone asks me what is that funny thing you've got, then I know I'll never go to sea no more, no more. Then I know I'll never go to sea no more. So that's in a march cadence. So that, uh, that has actually, I've watched that being done by uh, by a crowd of young young men and women uh, between the ages of 17 and 25, uh, and they were actually marching around the capstan singing that, and I've never felt so good in all my life. Well, I really enjoyed talking to Tom Lewis, and if you want to know more about him, his website is tomlewis.net, and he's also on Facebook, Tom Lewis Songs. 
I think when restrictions lift, we might go to visit Tom on his boat on the Shannon waterways. Shipping around the world was thrown into chaos this week when a giant container ship, the Ever Given, got stuck in the Suez Canal. Efforts are still underway this evening to refloat her, but thousands of ships are backing up in the Gulf and the Mediterranean, waiting for the Ever Given to be cleared. Paul Stott is a naval architect and a senior lecturer in ship production at Newcastle University. I asked him if he could give me an idea of the scale of this vessel. It's quite a difficult thing to answer because, it, it, you know, to give you something that you can relate to, you know, I can tell you it's 400 metres long and it's as long as the Empire State Building. Well, that's actually quite a good way of giving you an idea of how big it is. So the statistics I like just to try and get across quite how big this thing is. Um, if you took all the boxes off, so there's 21,000 shipping containers on it. So these are the um, 20-foot-long boxes that you see on the back of trucks. It's 125 kilometres of boxes. That sort of gives you the impression quite how big this is. Um, Another one I like is that um, these ships carry big deck cargoes. So there's a stack on the deck, nine boxes high. That's actually quite a lot of the cargo. The Volume of the deck cargo, um, its tonnage is equivalent to, I think it's 1.3 Titanics. So the three thing is carrying the equivalent of 1.3 Titanics on the deck. Why have they grown so big? It's economy of scale. So the, the um, logistics shipping industry, well, as all shipping industries are actually, is highly competitive. So you've got to reduce the cost per box of shipping a box. And um, there is economy of scale in a ship. The bigger you make the ship, the lower the unit cost of the cargo that you're shipping. And it's because you you, you know, you, you have 20 to 25 crew if it carries 20,000 boxes. You have 20 to 25 crew if it carries 10,000 boxes. And the cost of building the ship doesn't increase proportionately. And the cost of fueling it doesn't increase proportionately. So it's about economy of scale. But there's a big question here as to whether it's got too big. Um, We've got precedents here. Um, So this ship weighs, if we talk about not gross tonnage, but how much it actually weighs, um, it's uh, about a quarter of a million metric tonnes. Well, the biggest ships we have ever built when they were full of cargo, weighed 650,000 metric tons. And they were very big oil tankers we built in the 1970s. Um, but they died as a ship type because they were too inflexible. Um, and I just wonder whether what we're seeing here, um, there's a, a sort of strong tendency in container shipping for bigger ships, but there's another school of thought that um, has smaller and more flexible ships. So, for example, um, the alternative route for a container from China currently coming to Europe via the Suez Canal, but it could go via the Panama Canal. Um, and that's about 25% further. But the biggest size of ship that can get through Panama can only carry 13,000 boxes. So, you, you, in this situation, you're much more flexible if you've got a route alternative. 
are, are this, these ships with their size stable? Are they easy to handle and are they stable? Yes, they're stable. Uh, are they easy to handle? No, not nothing of that size is. It takes a lot of experience. You know, the, the crew is, um, you know, competent and very experienced crew. But the issue here is, if you look at the length of the ship compared to the width of the channel, um, it doesn't take very much for that ship to go off course for very long for the bow to hit the bank. The, the most credible explanation for what's happened to me is a combination of lack of visibility in this sandstorm and a gust of wind. And with a very high side, you know, it basically acts as a sail, and if you get a wind on the beam, it'll blow you sideways. Um, and it doesn't take very much of that, given the size of the ship compared to the width of the channel, for it to um, lodge, as it's done. This is, this is far from the first ship to end up sideways in the Suez Canal. Um, but it, it um, you know, just happens that it's so heavy, it's going to take a bit of shifting. Are they going to be able to get the thing afloat again? Uh, yes. I mean, it, it, it will eventually happen, but it's seeming to be, because of the weight of the ship, um, it's going to take a while. So you have to lighten it. Um, and you can take the fuel and the water ballast off. That's easy. You just pump that. But if you have to try and take the boxes off, um, it's a big operation, that. And I, I did a quick calculation before. If you assume you take half the boxes off, 10,000 boxes, and it takes five minutes to get each one off, that takes a month. <laughs> okay. And it, it, this is another feature of just quite how big these things are. Um, and that, you know, where are you going to put the boxes? Are you going to put them on the bank? Are you going to put them on trucks? Are you going to put them on a, a lighter vessel and ship them through? Um, and, of course, you put more than one crane on the job, but it's certainly going to take weeks. Um, so it's looking like, you know, an intractable problem. But, it, you know, we are vulnerable to our logistics industry now, and if it hadn't been, you know, this is one thing that could have happened that has happened, um, but it's not really, at the bottom line, an issue of ship size, because you could block that canal with a much smaller ship than that, and the canal has been closed twice in its history, in the 1950s and the 1970s, um, and it's closed by politics and war. And there are other choke points that, you know, logistically we're vulnerable to around the world. So, you know, we, we, the big question now is how shipping adapts in the intervening period. And I think, you know, if I were the Suez Canal Authority, I'd be looking at this and think, I'm not charging enough. <laughs> if, if my service is this valuable, um, I probably should be charging more for it. And the Panama Canal Authority will be rubbing their hands because the alternative route, one of the alternative routes is around the south of Africa. But a similar distance is through Panama. So you come from Shanghai. Uh, this ship's voyage was typical. It loaded up uh, around the coast of China and its last protocol was Singapore in the Far East and then back through Suez. Well, you could come the other way. You could come through Panama and it adds about 25% to the voyage. We're vulnerable to this, and you know, let's look at the shipping industry is well managed and intelligent thing, and we will adapt. But it will cause problems. I noticed in the press this morning, the problems are related to garden furniture and barbecues. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
bread. Um, because I mean, I that's we, what they're carrying. Yeah, well, they carry everything. You know, look at look around you. Just about every single thing you can see has come in a box from the Far East, including your shoes. So oh. it, I think it's less of a problem with the oil um, because there are alternatives for oil. You can put the oil in bigger ships and bring it around the Cape. And uh, I think oil is a much slower trade. The real problem here is the stuff um, that's in the boxes. Thanks to Paul Stott of Newcastle University. I think we'll finish the programme with another song from Tom Lewis. That's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. You'll find everything from the programme on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. And if you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. Well, my father often told me when I was just a lad A sailor's life was very hard, the food was always bad But now I've joined the Navy, I'm on board a man of war And now I've found a sailor, ain't a sailor anymore Don't haul on the rope, don't climb up the mast If you see a sailing ship, it might be your last Get your civvies ready for another run ashore A sailor ain't a sailor, ain't a sailor anymore Well, the killick of our mess, he He says we've had it soft It wasn't like this in his day when he was up aloft We like our bunks and sleeping bags, but what's a hammock for? Swinging from the deckhead or lying on the floor Don't haul on the rope, don't climb up the mast If you see a sailing ship, it might be your last Just get your civvies ready for another run ashore A sailor ain't a sailor, ain't a sailor anymore Well, they gave us an engine that first went up and down And that's where we take our leave of Seascapes, which was presented and produced by Fergal Keane.